So, what to do? <laughs> so, our last evening together. And Jamo's taking the night off. It's her husband's 40th birthday, so she's going to go be with him for the evening and then come back. And she wanted you not to worry about her. I was thinking about just maybe before we get to questions, uh, just relationship and as we move now closer to the end of the retreat, we move, you know, kind of the idea of tomorrow coming, the future, and a lot of ways that we're in relationship to the world. There is kind of a point in my practice, and I don't know how kind of canonical, like based in the canon this is, uh, I haven't seen the exact wording of this, but to me, increasingly, this feeling of being in relationship seems to apply to to everything that we are in relationship to our breath. We're having a relationship to our body, to our mind, to our heart. And we often, you know, think of relationship as being with another or outside. It's interesting that, you know, in the teachings, in some ways, what the Buddha was placing the point of suffering on was in a way in a relational field saying, we suffer not because of this thing, but our relation, our relationship to it. When we have an antagonistic relationship or a needing, I must have, or an unconscious, not aware, or wrongly knowing, wrongly understanding. And this creates suffering. So I used to explore, I still explore this as I'm aware of anything in my own immediate experience, you know, whether it's a very deeply subjective internal or something external. This ongoing process of seeing what is my relationship to, to this, to this moment, to this experience. passing ordinary moments of breathing, if that's what one is mostly mindful of or whatever it is, we are training in relationship in a basic way. There's a way in which the heart and mind is learning how to open, how to settle, how to be with what is, what's here. So there's a greater intimacy, greater vulnerability and that brings in aliveness. We're not kind of conceptualizing moment after moment our experience. We're not lost in the kind of the fabrications of the mind. Just, you know, seeing some of you looking at the sunset this evening, it's before the talk, uh, I like that the sun sets often, depending on season, but you know, it sets often around the Dharma talk and just the rhythm of taking in the day and what happens on retreat is we're given this space to be aware of the rhythms of passing days without even trying. It's like we start to recognize, yeah, another day is coming to an end. 
but in a more kind of awake way, really sensing this, this change. So our relationship to the day shifts as we notice it more, more sensitive to time. In one of the groups, someone was talking about their own practice of contemplating death. And that's a, one of the teachings, one of the, one of the many skillful means that the Buddha taught was to hold this reflection nearby and not as something morbid and depressing. But actually when, we're, when we are more sensitive to passage of time, not as, no, we're not asleep. We're not as unconscious in the preciousness of this moment. So the world, in the way we relate to the world, often conditions how it is that we view it. And particularly when we have a lot of habits of identifying ourselves in the midst of our story. It conditions it towards wrong views or unwise attention. One of the things that's been happening here, and we you know, each of us, Rebecca and Jamo and I, and you know, in the groups, we can see it is, you know, the mind, you may not recognize it, but this, these qualities get stabilized on retreat. And something like right view becomes stronger. And we start to really orient to our own experience as things that we can be aware of. We can feel the unpleasantness, the dukkha of something. When we see ourselves being caught and it's a little bit more tolerable, is seeing the Dhamma, we see the Dharma. There's a lot of, a lot of things the Buddha extolled as being very precious. You know, one of them was spiritual friendships, but he actually said about right view, he said there's no factor as important or as significant as right view that leads to the ending of suffering. And no factor as significant as, right, as wrong view that leads to the arising of suffering. No factor as significant as right view that leads to the arising of wholesome mind states. And no factor as significant as wrong views that arise, that lead to unwholesome mind states. And I like to really consider what it is in the world that leads our minds to pay unwise attention, that we take things to be self, and it makes it harder to see the Dhamma. Because here, just by being in this field together, it becomes easier to see the Dhamma. We start to recognize things are impermanent. We can begin to appreciate the lawfulness of processes of the heart and mind, experiences of the body. We recognize it for what it is. You know, and as we move back into the world, we call it the world, but it's like my life. You know, my life, my life situation. My partner, my job. How does it make you feel when I say these things? My, my, <laughs> my responsibilities. Right, the mind starts to get, uh, I don't know, for me it's like already there's a bit of, can be more energy, more reactivity. Because that, that mind, that me mind that the Buddha pointed to, we mistaken things, we, we own them in ways that will make it harder to see the reality. And this is what unwise attention is about. We don't see things for what they are. So the challenge as we 
emerge back into our own kind of patterned life. It's really not that hard, but it does take a willingness to, to look, to open, to be present, and cultivate this path, cultivate, bring up your own wisdom. Bring in wise reflections, reminders. Why is it that we suffer? I was just thinking about dirty dishes for some reason. It's odd how the mind works. (laughs) I was thinking how when it's my partner that's left dirty dishes, it's suffering. But you know, Joseph Goldstein, when he gives me his dirty dishes to clean, like he's, or he's sitting there and I was like, oh, it's good karma to do Joseph's dishes. <laughs> <laughs> so can we change the view? You know, make it... Happy to uh, take any questions, comments. We have a lot of time. Yes. Can you say a little bit more about right view? Mm. Yeah, right view. So to say a little bit more about right view. Oftentimes I like to start with the opposite because in, in some categories it's easier to think about what what is a wrong blank, you know, wrong, wrong view. And again, right and wrong in the Dharma is, a, is really about that which leads to well-being, right? That which leads to the ending of suffering, right? That is right, meaning, and that's sama, and it's not the, really the right word to say right, but it's, that's what we use. And then wrong views are those views when we hold in the mind lawfully lead to agitation, to stress, to suffering, to dukkha. The basic wrong views are identifying with things, me, mine, in my control, happening to me. I was in the past, I will be in the future, or I am currently, right? This, this basic view. It's also wrong, in, in a sense, wrong views when we're not understanding the Four Noble Truths. We're not understanding that. So this, the view in the mind of why we're suffering is clouded. We have no understanding. And we then are in a constant uh, predicament. We're trying to get out. And it said, you know, the Buddha said that when we do suffer, there are two basic responses. One is bewilderment, leads to more suffering and the other is search, and we search a way out. And if we have a path, dukkha can trigger this sense of what is it that, where is, where is this freedom in this moment? Is it possible? And we have to look, is there a way out of this particular, and that's not the suffering that we can't avoid in the world, in the sense of that first, first start, first arrow of life. But the mind's reaction, that's something we can cultivate. We can look and learn about these habits that we keep talking about. So then right views are the views that help to see the Dhamma. We see things as they are, yata bhuta, which is things as they have come to be. So we begin to understand life as a process, right? causes and conditions. When there is this, this comes to be. When this ends, this ceases, right? So we start, we see causes, causes and and results. And increasingly we know what are the conditions I can put in place for the results that I want to end up with, right? And in the Dharma, we really, we know, we know, we know what is worth cultivating. 
And it may not be that results feel they're not immediate. But, you know, one of the precious things about hang, you know, getting to spend time hanging out with people in the Dharma who've spent decades in the Dharma, it's easy to think they're like amazing beings. You know, when I think of my teachers who spent decades. And when I hear them talk about the defilements, it's so clear they have had every defilement because that's how they talk about it so skillfully. And that's all, we, that's all we're doing in the path, basically, is meeting what's here and learning about it again and again. And that conditions, you know, so much that it's, the whole path comes from that. And if as long as we keep putting in those seeds, the fruits will come, the fruits come. So basic right views are this, you know, this diff, you know, this is more colloquial language, but this is nature, conditionality, causes and conditions. Anything that helps the mind to realize what it is one is, is experiencing as an actual momentary arising as something that's being known, right? And that's where we can also learn how to relate to something through these practices of metta, compassion, because we're really seeing something for what it is, and the tendency to resist and reject starts to fall away. And the mind's being conditioned to be very open, receptive, because this is what's here. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah. Yes? The one book you would recommend to this group. (laughs) (laughs) The one book. It's in your heart, right? I mean, that's... Obviously, the more we spend with our own mind and heart, it, it, we're all very different. So hard for me to say something uh, that's going to apply to to everyone. Um, an overview book that I like a lot is Joseph Goldstein's book on mindfulness. It just gives a very good overview of categories. It walks you through the whole mindfulness uh, teachings, the, the four foundations. And in, in those foundations, you get a lot of categories. And they're based on the, f- the 40 talks that he gave at the Forest Refuge over the course of several years. So it's, it's a great, uh, I think, overview. Um, there's so, just so many wonderful books. If you like, you know, some of the things that I've languaged, that would be more in the style of, of Saida Utejaniya. And his books are freely offered on his People have put them on, the, on his website. And he has one, a, a book in Shambhala called When Awareness Becomes Natural. So that just got released recently. Rebecca, what book do you say? I have a reading list I'm putting out tomorrow. Ooh, Rebecca has a reading list, recommended reading list she's putting out tomorrow. So, and that's got a whole array of suggestions. Great. Yeah. Yes. So I'm wondering more about the idea of like me, my. Um, so like, if you were to say my responsibilities, what does that mean? Like they're just things that I'm doing, or like my dog, like it's just a dog that hangs out with me. Like, right. How do right. you how do you grapple with actually like you know they they are things that I have to do that are specific to me. Right. And yes. Yeah. Just more question, kind of questions, curiosity around me, mine, and my dog. Do I just, is it just this dog? Yeah. That we're just, <laughs> this thing that I don't have any responsibility to, right? These aren't my dishes. <laughs> See how far that gets you. <laughs> uh, so, the, yeah, it's great. It's, it's, this is really, this is kind of crux of, of what we kind of investigate is what is this sense of self mm-hmm. and what do we add on to an experience, right? And a lot of this, this uh, sense of self that, that we're looking at is just an extra layer that the mind is putting on to an experience. But the understanding still is there, for, we say the understanding is there of responsibility, of cause and effect process, of knowing what's appropriate. So. Mindfulness, for example, in, in the Satipatthana, the mindfulness teachings, there's a lot of different qualities of mind that are cultivated. One of them also is 
sampajanya, which is clear comprehension, which in a way is an understanding of, of context, situation. So we're not just being mindful in an isolated way. This wisdom factor is there. And we re- really understand broadly what's the, what's the suitable thing to do. And the Buddha often talked about kind of reflecting on what would the wise say is worth doing, right? What would the wise, and it's interesting that that would be a reflection that at that time he would say, consider what it is that's appropriate in your time and place. And that helps to kind of cut through our own, you know, opinions about things. That's a little bit of a tangent. So, When I think of, I mean, one of the things that we've talked about is what happens when the sense of self is very strong. First, that, you know, it, it will lead the mind to, to cling to things more, right, and really hold on. And it also tends to make the mind more consumed, or we say obsessed, with thoughts of self. Both of those don't actually support our ability to be skillfully with whatever it is that we're trying to be with. So when I think of like in being in a relationship with someone, if I say my partner, right, I start, I really, there's this way that I would be relating that is much more about needing or ownership or my own stories about them that doesn't block my understanding on a relative level of the history of commitment, the sensitivity of suffering, the, right, the vulnerability of being in relationship, all of that is understood and known, but it doesn't require that clinging of self, right? So then you can be with a dog and it's your dog, right? But on another level, is also appreciating, oh, this is also a dog. I mean, the dog, it's, what's, do you have a dog? Yeah. What's the name of your dog? Rowan. Rowan. So this is still, this is Rowan, right? This is this being. And we can feel kind of the tenderness of being very close, right? And we're going to feel the loss. Very real, very real. But part of the process and in, in kind of, exploring our relationships to things is starting to more fully realize, well, what is this dynamic, this living process of being in relationship to things that are impermanent, not in my control, right? And we can see it when we've really clung to things, it hurts that much more, which is okay. But part of the healing process is to begin to let in the way things are, right? And as Rebecca was saying, when we're in conflict with the way things are, it's natural, it's lawful that suffering follows. But no part of that means not to be intimate with life. It actually, for me, increasingly frees me up to be available because now I, I can be with whatever emotions arise in the whole process because we don't know how, how long any relationship is going to last for. Everything is, is so uncertain. Right? And, and it's, it's part of what we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to meet this again and again. The sense of self is so powerful because it's the most personal thing we have. But as the wisdom gets stronger, there is this sense of being in the exact same life, but a bit freer. Right? This heart is open. It's available. It's, Right? And that's this, this process that we're going through. And no, nothing to get rid of. And the, the, sometimes it feels like I've got to kill the self because there's no self. And uh, we don't have to kill, like get rid of the self or do anything. It's really the wisdom that starts to see, oh, the idea of self is just when the mind is thinking about self. But plenty of times when we're not thinking about self, naturally we feel more aligned with 
this kind of ease of just breathing and being here. And then again, we have to recreate our stories. We create our personalities. And oftentimes it's very peaceful to not have to present ourselves because we're not having to create that. Right? There's a retreat uh, that that was part of a friend of mine and I were, were teaching together. And at the end of it, it was a smaller type of retreat. And just to integrate again, we were standing in a circle at the very end of the retreat and uh, the kind of ending ritual there is to, we're in a circle and then you just silently start to walk around and, and, you know, you can look at each other and maybe, you know, like this. And there was this whole like experience of this huge smile, couldn't stop the smiling because now you're looking at people and you haven't been doing that. But also there's all this other energy is coming. One part of it was very pleasant, but after about five minutes, it was excruciating to be like being conditioned to just, can't help it when you're kind of looking at people you haven't gotten a chance to look at. Now you're all smiling. Uh, Oh my God, it's exhausting. Let's just like go back to being yogis, like just quietly like sitting here and just, you know, letting the ease be here again. So just that clinging energy of presenting or something was, was there for me. Yeah. Um, then how do I mm, grow like a love for myself if mm-hmm. I am supposed to kind of be, I don't know, more detached or I'm not really sure. Like how do I have compassion for myself? Yeah. I'm not trying to have an identity. Right. If you're not trying to build an identity, how do you have love for yourself? Mm-hmm. I think just by staying, just by being at home with your own, your own experience, honoring that this is what's here. And this being is the most precious in a way at this moment for me, because it's, it's what I'm with all the time. And another level, as, as we're with other beings, they're, they're as important because they're here with us and we're open to that. So even though we're not, we're not necessarily going down the road of trying to create personalities and whatnot, but that's part of the natural process. We are, it's beautiful to see personalities be created and the rest of it. It's just the extra clinging to it. We'll feel that as if that becomes our identity, in a way we begin to box ourselves in. If all I am is my personality, which is what I was, in a way, it's just clinging to what I believed, you know, was my limited story, and then only chasing after good experiences that gets very confining. Mm-hmm. And this refuge, that it really is this invitation to be something that is so natural, but that the capacity of the human heart and mind, it's unbelievable. We all have this. If we have just enough abilities to be aware, it's extraordinary what we're capable of. And that goes in both directions. Right, so to really recognize what we're capable of, and this is often more true in Buddhist societies, is this sense that this is such a fortunate birth, not because of the actual conditions we have, but because of the potential. And this inner feeling of self-worth is so different because that is so strongly in place. So when you reflect of your own potential, that can really bring up so much joy and inspiration of, yeah, it's just a matter of cultivation, mm-hmm. right? And the more we cultivate, the more the results come, right? And I'm sure you've already seen it as you do retreats, mm-hmm. as, you, as you spend time here. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you're welcome. Let me just see if there's anyone who hasn't asked the question. Yes, I'm just waiting to see if someone who hasn't asked the question yet. I thought you, okay, I thought you had, yeah. Mm. This idea of ourselves being responsible or owning it, that really is the story. 
Right, right. Yeah, the the idea of ownership, you know, the questions of is it really, does it really belong? And ownership is definitely more, it's a concept. But that doesn't mean we don't honor. There's lots of motivations that that are in a relationship, right? Some of the motivations are because there is a a mutual understanding. There's a recognition of history and bonds and closeness. And the Buddha talked frequently of, of those around him that he deeply appreciated. He didn't just look around and say, oh, it's all, it's all empty. And yet, on another level, there, is the, there are those insights. So learning how to kind of intertwine these different understandings, which is a path of freedom on a more ultimate level, but meeting life relationships, responsibilities in a way that is as skillful and awakened on a relative level as we can. Because that's, that's this life, which is we are living in a life that is filled with relationships, filled with a world that needs attention, needs care. And we don't just walk around saying it's all empty because if we look at anyone who has practiced well, what do they do? You know, they really they live a life of service, or they try, you know, they try and do something. And it looks many different ways. You know, I, I, I don't think there's any one way, but, you know, sometimes the, the best service we can do is actually going on these kinds of retreats, long retreats, because it's the purification of mind and heart, and then we, we're, we're more freed up, right, more available. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. A lot about all this as it reflects itself out in the social political world. Mm-hmm. And like um, last night, uh, Rebecca, you said something, you were talking about meta and um, making the point that it can lead to social engagement. You were talking about your own connection to climate change. But in saying it, you, I'm very roughly paraphrasing, you said something sort of as if anger was not good, but compassion, caring and compassion were. And in my experience, Mm -hmm. in lots of social justice situations, anger comes from caring and compassion, Mm -hmm. and obviously can become destructive like anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you guys keep talking about Burma, I hear Myanmar, you know? Right, yeah. And I'm thinking about the Rohingyas, and so just sort of how to... Yeah, I, just the comments on here on the, the some reflections on meta, um, and in her it shares sharing your life experiences that oftentimes in so in social justice work or you know, just being in the world that we're in, that a lot of energy seems to come from the anger. The compassion is comes from sometimes the anger of injustice, and then how do you also hold a place like Myanmar, which is a source of a lot of these teachings, and then how the country has been handling the Muslim population, the Rohingya. And so I'll just, there, I feel a little bit different questions. So in the... Um, <coughs> I think I may have talked about this a little bit, but in, in the Dharma, these qualities of mind that the Buddha was kind of touching, pointing out, there they are... At times, they're very discreet or very, they're delineated very kind of clearly. And I think in our own experience, it sometimes feels as if they're all coming together. There's a way in which as we get clear about what really is motivating me to take an action that is skillful, is it really the, the anger? Because anger blocks and clouds and, and it makes the mind narrow. Right, that function though often comes, but it, it it comes along with this understanding this is wrong. And I think oftentimes the anger can feel as if it's what's motivating us, when in fact, there's compassion, there's wisdom that's also in, that's the wisdom that's understanding this is wrong and this is leading to suffering. 
So if we're looking more carefully, what really is the motivation we want to try to cultivate? I think this is worth just investigating and seeing, because if it's wrong, let it go. But if it's if there's a way to see, does the anger actually help? And I know oftentimes it feels like it may, and, and it may be that there's a lot of different things going on, which is, this has got to stop, and, you know, but it's more like there's a lot of factors that are activated there, and one is very clearly this discernment, this is wrong. But clear discernment that's powerful doesn't need to be destructive in the sense of it, it closes the mind and doesn't allow us to see anything clearly, which doesn't understand conditionality, so won't understand how to act effectively. Right? When wisdom is there, it's very clear, it's open, but it also can be very responsive. Right? So you don't just kind of watch some situation that's about to happen that's going to cause a lot of suffering, and if you can do something, you can act really engaged. But I think a lot of burnout... For those that are on the front lines, oftentimes you hear about this, which is the burnout comes from just the level of, of agitation, suffering that's there. And part of that training then is how do I stay sensitive and do what I can in this short life that we have right, to really make this world as good a place as we can, right? but also do it as skillfully so that I can still be available. You know, the, the examples of Archbishop Desmond Tutu and the Dalai Lama, who have seen so much suffering, there's still this kind of ongoing, ongoing joy of the way things, you know, not the joy about the way things are, but it's availability of the heart to continue. But if there was anger and, and you know, that would, that would be absolutely exhausting. And you know, we can feel that, we can feel that anger. And then when I see in Buddhist countries that there is delusion and hatred going on, I realize there's delusion and hatred going on, even in, the, even in Buddhist countries. Just because someone has put on robes doesn't change them at all, right? They're just now a person who's ordained and they have robes on, and a lot of them are saying very unskillful things. So if we can see the nature of the mind, we understand that's delusion. We don't listen to it. Right, so we ought to know for ourselves what's worth listening to and what's happening. And we really understand conditions and it, it's not so confusing because we know forces of mind, habits of mind are powerful and they may show up in our own teachers, but we have to then understand that habit is there for them. But if we don't see that and we just kind of see a teacher that we like and we kind of have this idea and idealize we're clinging, we're not understanding conditionality. You know, and there's a lot of teachers I've learned from, but then I see something, it's like, oh. But then I learn from it, and I say, oh, okay, so that habit is there. That, that, that's there. Yeah, and if they see it too, that's great. So they're, they're, they're awake. That's great. You know. You're welcome. Yes. 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 So are we supposed to sit on the mat and say it again, like try to think about a lot of the suffering in the world? Yeah, because right. we go into the groups and I hear right. people are suffering. Yes. Very, very real thing. Yes. And I've had a pretty miserable couple of years. Right. Yeah. Well, part of being just there, if you're if you're really allowing this being just there to get cultivated, part of that is then allowing 
what needs to be seen to be seen. And we don't really need to go digging in a way. There are times when the mind is very clear, very settled. I was, you know, I was coached. You can use, a, use those moments if it feels relevant. And it's just up to you. You have to decide, does this feel like it's going to make the mind, you know, spin out and think too much? Or is this actually a good moment to drop something in? Into the mind heart, just a simple little thing and see what happens. Because now the mind is clear. It's a lot of wisdom. It's very, it's, there's to use those moments. But oftentimes those things find us. It's interesting, like if there is material that is percolating, we don't even need to go looking. There's a way in which just by being with our own experience, again and again, the Dharma reveals itself. And I'm always amazed that the things that it seemed that I need to learn, they're there. They, they sort of present themselves because it's what the mind is grappling with or struggling with. And I sometimes may assume I have to learn something when in fact the mind isn't, it isn't hurting. The heart isn't hurting around something. But then other times it may be that I'm blocking something out. Oh, I've actually frozen that part of my sensitivity. I've othered that part of life, the world. And as we feel that, there can be a sense of thawing. And that thawing may hurt, it's aches to thaw. I remember thinking for a while, I was like as a child playing out in the cold. And if you play outside for too long in the cold, you go numb. But then just by coming inside, don't need to do anything. It's like the, the sensations start to come back, right? And that can be a little bit painful. I remember the hands kind of ache, and, but it's like regaining sensitivity. But you don't need to try, just a natural process by showing up, listening, just ordinary, ordinary moments, right? And then if there's, if there's grief and things that want to surface when, if that is there, we don't need to think it's there, but if, it, if there's things, okay. Or if we want to extend our, extend our, our care, our awareness to difficult situations in the world to help just stay sensitive and awake. You know, like with, here at IMS, like there's so much work that's being done around race and this, you know, privilege of being white. And there is so much unconsciousness. If you're white, you don't think about race because everyone's white around you. Particularly if you come here, everyone's white. So then it's not in your mind. You forget about it if you're a person, if you're white in the category of, of whiteness. So to do that, to keep that kind of awareness if you're in a privileged group, which is part of wakefulness, is to really understand conditions, the conditions I'm in. Right? That's, that is going to be part of the territory because as we know, we're in a country that has creating a lot of suffering around color of skin. So there's lots of ways to try to stay sensitive. And some of those are actively can bring to mind because it's helpful. Yeah. Yes. Um, I've been thinking about the compartmentalizing since I was in group with you. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, uh, so the awareness is there, but you, but, uh, you wonder if you're, but how do you know? And um, but then you but then you are suggesting that you drop something in, right? Like yeah. Image or um, you guess? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a question of I, I think we had talked a little bit about things getting compartmentalized in our group, and how do you know whether or not you've you've shut something out? Is that right? Right. I think this is where suffering actually becomes a source of awakening in the path. Because anything that we have shut out will hurt at some point. We're numb. We don't feel it. We, but as we get more sensitive, we start to actually recognize that there is something I'm not including. And the entire journey as we go further and further along the path begins to open and include more and more so then we can actually use this if we're struggling, and maybe that's just unconscious things, but we're struggling. 
if we can feel the struggle and the stress, the suffering, you can really use that to awaken the mind. You, you look. And this is where kind of just being in the world, in life, is so helpful as part of our own spiritual practice path. Because it'll point to those places that we are stuck in a way, right? And then we can look and investigate, what, what views do I have about this? What are my assumptions? How am I holding this situation? Right? And if we get interested in really, dukkha then leads to the end of dukkha. So we say that, in, you know, I don't know if this is the Buddha or Ajahn Chah, there is the suffering that leads to more suffering. And there is the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. So suffering that leads to the end of suffering is that the, that suffering that we really listen to, we open to, we recognize, we turn towards it, we begin to investigate or just be aware, feel it. What is here? What is this? Can I open to this? Can I, can I extend my field a bit beyond my edge? Trusting awareness, whatever it is, right? So then we can, we can make that process, you know, and one teacher was described kind of coming into the world like this open thing, like a sheet or something. And then each kind of trauma in life closes, kind of folds these corners down, right? until what we're dealing with is very contracted and, but it feels safe, but it's our life and it also feels really contracted. And part of mindful awareness, this kind of open, kind-hearted meeting of conditions means these corners start to open again. And edges, places that we thought we couldn't open to, difficult relationships that are there are really just waiting for our own capacity to open to it again. And we all have that. We all have lots of things in our life that we're close to. So we, can I be interested? And it's hard, right? It's hard because it brings up fear and uncertainty and being judged. And so it's hard to do that. Yeah. But yes. Yes. Right. Yeah, this is this is part of the challenge. How do you how do you engage in what is asked of us, seems to be asked of us, are of cultural conditioning, of what the norm and but you know part of part of what the Dharma is leading us towards is actually becoming more and more ordinary. Right? Not extraordinary, but like ordinary. We're awake in the midst of our experiences. You know, I remember it's like earlier on is like my whole way of relating to the practice was like becoming sort of spiritual. And I was like, I looked at it, I shared my experience in India of trying to be like a sadhu, which <laughs> didn't fit, you know. To <laughs> uh, so that's not the path, right? But the path then becomes cultivation, cultivating the mind and heart. And no one in, in our work environments, we don't need to advertise this in a way. I like this idea of kind of like ninja, uh, ninja mindfulness, where you're there, you're being mindful, but you're not, you know, being mindful to others, but you're being mindful. You know what's happening for you. I think when you invite in your practice into places that you're not normally, you'll feel actually better. It doesn't interfere with the natural flow of just, 
you know, being and meeting, meeting circumstances, it might, you know, people might think, hmm, why are they more peaceful? You know, less, there's, there's good things that are comforting, less reactive. Um, but the habits are so strong that we feel like we have to behave our personality out. And it feels, it can feel a little frightening to actually trust this process of being here and being present. But it only feels wobbly because we're not used to it. But as we actually get more confident that, yeah, in a relationship or in a conversation, I can trust being mindful. And it's okay, but however they, then they are, I'm then even more interested in keeping this kind of clarity of knowing because I feel the benefit it brings. I'm more available, right, in this dynamic. But again, if we don't, if we don't actually try to practice at work, really just, even if it's one moment in a day, one more moment than the previous day, if we don't try that, it's just, we don't get, be- we don't get better at that, right? And we, as yogis, oftentimes, like, what we get really good at is when the eyes are closed. And then we associate closed eyes with awareness, with mindfulness, with love. It's like, I love you. It's like, it's like oh! It's like, Close the eyes again. I love all beings. <laughs> I love, who do I love? Yeah. So it's like, you know, chai, eyes open, you know. Eyes open and love and chai. Right. It's just a quality, it's just a quality of mind, heart. So try, we try to practice in ways that expand. We, you know, because we've all developed more, more momentum, but then when, the more we try it, the more it gets better. You know, so one of the things that my teacher wouldn't, he just would not let me report about my sitting because he saw how attached I was to my sitting. He wanted to hear, how is it, you know, when you're talking, when you're walking around and, because he just wanted that, that continuity to get stronger and for me to believe that I could do it. You know, so it was interesting to feel empowered about it like that. Okay, we'll take this question. That's what I, behind you, yeah, she was, yeah, yeah, yes, sorry. Um, somewhat related to that question, I've been um, on this path for a while, and um, I've found that sometimes I can't, um, I don't have the same um, mm. attachment anymore to people I knew earlier on, and and I find it difficult to be around close friends who sort of get me agitated. Mm-hmm. I don't mm-hmm. feel like I'm better than they are, but I just kind of want to say, honey, you got to meditate. You know? I know. <laughs> <laughs> but, but even also, like, in my work, I've, I've changed my work because uh-huh. I couldn't just sort of be on all the time. It didn't align with sort of mm-hmm. where I was going. And, mm-hmm. um, in some ways, I think it's good. In other ways, I feel like I sort of don't Yeah, I know, just interesting reflections. That that seems to be the way it happens for a lot of a lot of people in the Dharma, a lot of us where we make some some different decisions get made, um, some friendships sometimes change. It can feel as if maybe I'm pushing things away, but the Buddha actually encouraged if you want to walk the path, right, that goes against the stream of habits, you're going to have to spend time with, with those that have cultivated themselves, right? And he said frequently, associate with the wise, you know, and it doesn't mean get rid of your friends, right? Unless they're really unwise. But then when you're ready, you help them if you can, right? But, um, You know, as far as attachments to, you know, again, it's kind of attachments to things. I do feel, I feel like increasingly there is an ongoing, like increasing openness or intimacy to relationships. But the mind that then needs it, like the sense of being lonely or alone or missing friends that I haven't seen in that way of like that kind of, dukkha way, 
but the love is as available, right? That gets nurtured. Yeah, but there are some kinds of clinging that we have considered the base of a relationship, which in fact really doesn't serve in some ways a kind of that attaching holds on and needs and expects. And, you know, I feel like that boxes things in or boxes the other person into expectations. And, um, you know, love is really an amazing quality. It asks nothing, right? But it can give everything. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. You know, so in, in the world, it's like, I remember Utejaniya telling me once, it's like, maybe not to the degree that this sounds, but he, you know, because I understood what he was saying, but he said, do what you want to do, which doesn't mean just go do whatever, but he's like, do what you want to do, but learn learn. So it's like you just keep living and learning, living and learning. And you use whatever wisdom that, you know, we have at the time. You use whatever qualities are there to the best of our ability and we keep, keep meeting this living process. Right? And if we're really, if we are paying attention and we have some understanding of life, of how to look, we're going to get so many lessons, so many chances to grow and to try and to try again and to try again. And you know, at the end of a day, can be helpful. Just a moment before falling asleep. How was this day spent? What could I learn? What did I learn? And then as you wake up, just a little intention. How do I want to spend this day? You know, these days are passing. How do I want to spend this day? You know, and it feels like, oh, these are, this is a wise way of spending one's time, one's life. It feels more skillful to, to live in this sort of wakefulness, resonance. You know, cultivating ourselves like this during these passing days, it's really significant. You know, and it's, it, at the beginning of each retreat, it's like my mind's like, oh, another retreat. <laughs> you know, I say, no, this is an amazing retreat. But it's like, yeah, another retreat. But then as the qualities get kind of developed and we're here in a more kind of sensitive field and I, we feel it, it's like the mind is more available and present, not as scattered. I realize how precious it is to get this chance to do this. You know, and, to have friends that are on the path, to know others are practicing. How many beings around the world right now are practicing? It's a lot of them. We'll never meet them, right? A lot of them physically, but there's so many. Some deep in forests, you know, committing their life to development. Some on three-year retreats or six-year retreats. Others in their daily life with kids and chaos and all over the place just practicing. All right. So let's just take um, some moments to be here together without our words. It's a funny thing. It's like, how do I end this? It's like this tradition. It's like, let's be here. Let's sit for um, let's sit for a few minutes. Yeah. What do we say? What's the phrase? Let's sit for a few minutes without the words. Let's let the words fall away. I always found it kind of funny. I said, like, yeah, all right, let's let the words fall away. See what happens.